IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums, we hash out trends. In this episode we'll be looking back at one of the landmark albums of the 21st century, Radiohead's Kid A. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? All right. So, listeners, let's, let's, <laughs> let, let, listeners, let's just take a moment to gas this dude up, because I'm, I, I'm super proud of you for this book, man. It's like, this is the only, Kid A is the only thing you're going to read about for like the next week or so, and this man's got the definitive book on the subject, um... I, and uh, let's be real, if Stephen Hyden is not out there producing books, there is no, there's no Ian Cohen podcast. So, you know, I owe a lot to this man's work ethic and, you know, he's just killing it out there. I think it's just such an inspiration for people who are, you know, want, like, you know, wondering, like, how do I make it in music writing and, um, you know, all, all that. So big ups to you on that. Um also, oh man, it's getting it's getting dusty. Yeah, now, here, now I gotta write a book. Like I'm gonna like self, <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna self publish like a like a 33 and a third on like Promise Wings Wood Woodwater. So we have to do an episode of that. But oh. um, no, who? There's no self publishing. There's gotta be someone <laughs> who's gonna hand you the fat check yeah. <laughs> to write that book. I want to read. Yeah, that book. but um, you know, fun story. Like you know, I hold my head up super high. When I went into Diesel Bookstore, it's like called Diesel, but it's actually the independent bookstore in Del Mar, California. And, you know, I'm holding up the book to the to the cashier and I'm like, yo, dude, like I, I do a podcast with this dude. You should check it out. Are you a Radiohead fan? And he's like mid-20s and he says to me, it's like, oh, Radiohead, you know, I'm not that familiar with them. They're like kind of weird, right? So I I point that out because like there are still people who are like we talk about like Radiohead as if like they're you know like the Beatles, but for for some people there's they're still yet to go through their Radiohead phase. So uh, that's yeah, true. No, that kid that kid was probably yeah four or five years old when this when when Kid A came yeah. out. So I told him to listen to the podcast. So if you are listening, dude, whose name I don't recall from Diesel Bookstore in Del Mar, California, yo. This is this, your life is about to change. That's right. <laughs> We're making you a star diesel bookstore yeah. guy. Um, yeah, you know, and Ian, I just want to thank you for allowing me to do some gross self promotion on this episode mm. of our podcast. Because as you've alluded to, I have a new book that came out this week. It's called "This Isn't Happening: Radiohead's Kid A in the Beginning of the 21st Century." It came out on Tuesday, uh, and I figured. You know, we host an indie rock podcast, so we have to talk about. Yeah, you know, we're gonna we're not gonna really talk about my book. We're gonna be talking about Kid A. I mean, because this is even aside from the gross self promotion, this is like a major album uh, of the past twenty years. Of course, it came out on the day that this podcast is dropping on October second, two thousand. And uh, Diesel Bookstore guy aside, <laughs> I think it's safe to say that for a lot of people, Radiohead is like one of those foundational bands and you know and one of the major themes of my book is that Radiohead was a band that I grew up with mm. essentially like I, I remember when Creep showed up in the MTV buzz bin with like Hey Jealousy by the Jim mm. Blossoms and you know Low by Cracker mm. and Us Three Cantaloupe and all those kind of songs um, and I love <laughs> <laughs> very good and I bought Pablo Honey on CD I loved it at the time uh, I wrote a review of it for my local paper. It was like one of the first albums I ever reviewed. So, I mean, this is like, you know, a band that's kind of coming in at the ground floor for me in a lot of ways in terms of like writing about music and caring about music. And, uh, you know, just going through the 90s, OK Computer was a major event for me when that dropped in 1997. I was 19. I think that was the first Radiohead album I bought like the day it came out or a day or two after it came out. Definitely felt like, oh, this is my dark side of the moon. This is my pet sounds. This is my like all time classic record for my generation. And all that leads into Kid A. I'm curious for you. I mean, like, did you have a similar experience with Radiohead before Kid A came out? So the I did to an extent. Now it, it takes a little bit of time to get there because I mean, 
what I can't figure out for the life of me is how I watched MTV for like 10 hours a day in 1993. <laughs> like wake up, watch MTV, come home, like go to school, come home, watch MTV. Like as like I bought everything I saw on MTV in the buzz bin. I like ripped off Columbia House I don't know how many times. And yet somehow I never owned a copy of Pablo Honey. I have like did... A 13-year-old me think that creep was a little bit on the nose and over the top. <laughs> I, I, I just don't understand. Like, it, it just baffles me. Like, I, I I could spend an entire episode talking about the things that ended up back at Disco Round. But Pablo Honey, not one of them. And going – and, you know, furthermore to that point, like, the Benz, I vaguely remember d- dubbing it on a cassette. Um that's like that was about the like I knew they existed, but like they didn't get played on MTV a whole lot. I recall so like they just kind of faded at the periphery, and then um, see, I feel like they did with the Benz. I feel like because they had that was like the beginning of them making like pretty striking uh-huh. music videos, like for yeah. fake plastic trees and like just. I and, saw fake plastic um, trees. Like, I saw. I, I feel like I saw each of those videos like once, and they're very distinctive. Like I, I could have told you what they were about, but. You know, with, with, with OK Computer, now, like, there, one of the things that I had going on at 17 is that, like, I had a lot of trouble sleeping. So I would just, like, watch MTV late night. And there are a couple videos that I can remember seeing on MTV's late night programming that I, I just stopped whatever I was doing. And it, like, I, I just could not go to sleep because I was just so fixated on it. One was Eminem's My Name Is. I, I saw that video and thought this is going to be like the dumbest one hit wonder. Or this guy's going to take over the world. <laughs> Another was Andrew WK's party hard. Um, immediately. I, I need to know everything I can about this guy. I'm going to bring it to my friends in college and we are going to play this every single night on loop before we go drinking. And the other was paranoid Android. And it was like, I mean the, the animation of the video is just so disturbing and striking. And it, it just, like, wait, this is what Radiohead is? Like, this six-minute song that sounds like Bohemian Rhapsody? And I read a couple of reviews, uh, you know, about the album, like, talking about like, what a tremendous leap it was. And I bought this album on the day it came out, July 1st, 1997. I will always remember that day. And I bought it. I was on a teen tour in Israel. And the reason you no one ever got to borrow my copy of OK Computer is because it had like the Parlophone logo on the back. It had a sticker on the front with the price in uh, shekels and cursive Hebrew. And I mean, that album, like you said, it like I listened to this in the Israeli desert on a teen tour during like the best summer of my life. And I mean, this to give you an extent, to give you an idea of like how open I was to like, prof- quote, profound experiences. I also went through a heavy doors phase that summer. And, yes. and into like the Wu-Tang um, universe of their solo albums. And I mean, like, one of the things you talk about in the book is like, you know, how alt-rock gets like uh, slammed by a lot of people, like the coastal elites or whatever. But for, for kids in the suburbs, it's like, you know, a way out of this like mundane existence. It like gives you like it's a gateway, you know, gateway band gets used pejoratively a lot, but it's a gateway towards, you know, cooler things. And um, you know, in high school, like I would always just wish I could, you know, just like start over at a new place, you know, like I, I, it was a good time for the most part, but it was like, I wish I could just like, you know, reinvent myself, like with um, not being among these people who have seen me grow up for the past 12 years. And then during that summer in Israel, like the, for like those two months, I was like popular. Like I had made, I had made good friends. I had like a girlfriend for a week, which on an eight week teen tour is an eternity and I'd sit in the desert and have these profound spiritual experiences listening to Subterranean Homesick Alien. And from that point forward, being a Radiohead fan was a foundational component of my personality. Like, yeah. I was a Radiohead guy. I, th- I was buying the live bootlegs on, I guess, eBay? Was that? I don't know. Like, what? what? I don't know if that was... Yeah, I, I, I mean, I feel like I just bought bootlegs like at in record stores, and they would always be like in, in, severely marked. Up. Yeah. So like, if I if I wanted to buy like a Radiohead bootleg, or you know, there were like a lot of Pearl Jam bootlegs oh, back yeah. then, you'd spend like thirty or forty dollars mm. on a disc that you had no idea what it sounded like, and you could get it home, and it would be like a terrible audience take. Yeah. 
and you just felt like you got totally ripped off. But there was that moment of excitement right before you put the the disc on that like this might sound incredible. And sometimes it did. Some I think especially with Radiohead because there were I feel like they did like a lot of like radio shows like where things would be broadcast so just taping things off the radio and putting them on disc they'd end up sounding pretty yeah. good but uh yeah you know you, you made an allusion earlier about to sort of like the reputation of of alternative rock as the 90s went on and how i think especially for music critics there was this generation of bands that came out like right after nirvana hit big mm-hmm that were perceived to sort of be like jumping on that bandwagon. And there was an idea that like a lot of those bands were going to come and go, which... Some of them did. <laughs> true. Yeah, many of them did. But Radiohead was grouped into that initially. And this is something that we forget now. You know, we think of Radiohead being, you know, this all-time band. Again, like sort of a generation-defining band in many ways. But there was a long period of time where they were perceived to be this one-hit wonder mm-hmm. band. You know, they had the song Creep. This very melodramatic song, an emo-ish song, if I may say oh, so. I mean, I think it, it sounds very emo-ish, um, even though Radiohead's influence on emo seems somewhat nebulous. I don't know. Or, or a lot, a lot of a lot of emo bands like love Kid A. I mean, you know, you can hear it in like Foxing right. or whatever. But I like what I think. A point that you know this kind of elides is that. Radio, I think Radiohead was like dismissed in Britain, in England, because like they seemed ve- the the subject matter of Creep and the sound of it was very like American, not altogether right. dissimilar from say Bush, you know, as far as like the way they were perceived, you know. Yeah, they were very yeah, like Radiohead. Uh, initially, in England was you know dismissed; they weren't taken very seriously. Like the big band of the day was Suede. Mm. You know, people remember Suede, which is. You know, you look at them and you can see why in 1993 people would have been putting the smart money on them to be the successful band. They had this sort of glamorous swagger going on. They had all of the British rock touchstones, you know, in their music from like Bowie to T-Rex to all that stuff. Whereas, like you said, like Radiohead was this very sort of earnest band, kind of a nerdy band, like not especially cool, really, in the way they presented themselves. Uh, and yeah, it seemed like their influences early on were much more American, you know, like like the Pixies and uh, and even Nirvana a little bit. Although those are the things, of course, that allowed them to become much bigger in America than a lot of British bands uh, w- would become. Like Suede really had no presence. Yeah. In they America had at all, but they like, had to be re, they had to be renamed as the London Suede, you know, just to show right. just to show you. But I mean, those records are great. But I think that was like one of the situations where, like, two weeks before the album comes out, like I think the enemy called like Suede, like the greatest album of the nineties, like in nineteen ninety three. Right. So exactly, I, I, I missed they, they, that part of the British press, by the way. So <laughs> yeah, and, and by the way, go check out Suede if you ever oh, that record to Suede. rules, like, man. Ian says. That the first record's great. I like Dogman Star. Mm. The the next record, uh, that's like their sort of be here now, like <laughs> drugged out, you know, yeah. heroin, not cocaine. And it, <laughs> exactly, way over the top. Um, but I feel like Radiohead, even like up through OK Computer, they were still dealing with the aftershocks of of mm-hmm. creep and and being treated as a punchline by a lot of rock critics. Like when I was researching this book, I was really struck by the fact that. In the lead to the reviews of OK Computer and like Rolling Stone and Spin, like they reference Creep. Like people are still writing about Creep at that time. And in a way, I kind of feel like Kid A was the full culmination of Radiohead putting that part of their career to bed. This idea that like we're, because again, this, this runs so counter to how we talk about Radiohead now. Radiohead now has this reputation, I think somewhat unfairly of being this esoteric band you know this like you need like a college degree to understand them you know it's like way too like brainy for the average person to get into like initially they were looked at as this again like dumb nirvana they were were called complaint rock i believe in clueless right (laughs) that's <laughs> right that's right i forgot about that like that 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 is the 90s version of like uh death cat for cutie being on the oc of like being like one guy and a lot of complaining i mean i think for people who kind of you know just observers of pop culture like that was what radiohead may had been destined to be in like 1996 like prior yeah. to okay computer exactly like the like 
sad boy guitar band. Yeah, like the Benz, the Benz has kind of been like retconned into being this like five star, like 10.0 classic. And I, I love it. But like, I think that people kind of need to see that record as like the bridge between OK Computer and Pablo Honey, because like without it, it's like, you know, it's like if Michael Jordan went from being like cut from his varsity team, like if you cut out him going to North Carolina, you know, right. Like, yeah. the But the Benz was like a really good alt rock album. Like totally. not, yeah, and not and like t- a world changer. Although at the time, I feel like it was looked at as being a difficult record or like a curveball from Pablo Honey. I, because I know, like, for me, as much as I love Pablo Honey, I didn't get into the bends right away. I think, Same. again, just because I was already reading a lot of music magazines and I <laughs> internalized this view of them as being like a one hit wonder. And, it's like you don't need to buy the second record by the one hit wonder band. And it was only after like say like Big Plastic Trees became this major MTV hit, I feel like. Or I or you know, it, it, it just seeing the string of songs that came off that record just uh High and Dry, Street Spirit, you know, there were just like a just like a, a string of like really stunning singles off of that record and you're like But okay. none of them were hits. I don't think I would not call any of them hits. I think I heard just on the radio maybe once. Yeah, not yeah, that radio hits, but I feel like I saw those videos pretty regularly on MTV. I mean, cuz that would, you know, living in Wisconsin the way I was, that was the only way I would have been exposed. Yeah. Must be a time record. must be a time difference thing. You must've been watching MTV like 2 hours <laughs> after I was or something. I guess, I don't know, but um yeah, there was but yeah, they were definitely a alt rock band um of that time. You know, opening touring for Alanis all the time. Morissette, yeah. Opening for opening for REM on the Monster Tour, you know, yeah. putting in a lot of work, um, and really with uh, the success of OK Computer, it, it, it that was the record that put them at the status where the record company could say, okay, go into the studio, spend as much time as you want, and produce your masterpiece. And you know, we we don't care what it sounds like, uh, but uh, you know, you have the leverage now because of OK Computer. To do that, because again, like the records that they were making before that, were like were 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 relatively you know regimented in terms of the schedule. Like they certainly like with Pablo Honey, that was very quickly made. Uh, I think the Benz was like relatively you know that was knocked out pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, Kid A is really the beginning of like Radiohead albums. I feel like becoming like a major mm-hmm. endeavor, like yeah. where it's going to take a long time to make it and it's going to be a difficult record so since we're i guess i think we're segueing segueing now into the kid a portion of our episode let's just give a little background on this on this record for those who may not know what it is although i don't know why you're still listening to this episode if you don't know what kid a is read the book (laughs) read the book but yeah kid a is the fourth radiohead album again it came out on october 2nd 2000 uh it was recorded uh throughout 1999 and for a good part of 2000 um and they worked in various places, including Paris, Copenhagen, Gloucestershire, which I hope I pronounced that correctly, as well as uh, their hometown of Oxford. Uh, Kid A ended up debuting at number one on the Billboard charts in America. And I also debuted at number one in the UK. It was the first album of Radioheads to do that in America. Uh, it went on to be nominated for uh, Album of the Year. In 2000? And I'm trying to remember what won in 2000. I did not that, know that it got nominated for Album of the Year. I think Grammy. that was the year that Steely Dan won. Was that? Uh, two oh, Against man. Nature. I think because yeah. we always, yeah, it was because our uh, Eminem's Marshall Mathers LP was nominated that year, as was Kid A. Uh, oh. And lost to Two Against Nature by Steely Dan, which I love in retrospect. I love that Steely Dan won because I love because I love sure. Steely Dan, but I also think it's hilarious that Steely Dan won uh, the Grammy that year. Um, it has gone on to be considered. No, one of the oh, greatest. check this. Oh, you got to hear. That. Okay, we like you want to talk about like time stamping uh, two thousand. So Steely Dan did win Album of the Year. The other candidates were, as you said, Marshall Mathers LP, Kid A. Midnight Vultures. See, in 2000, Beck was still like reflexively being nominated for every single Grammy. And <laughs> lastly, here's the one that people forget: Paul Simon's "You're the One." Oh yeah. So you, you know what? You know, there's an alternate timeline where we're making this joke, but like Paul Simon is kind of the boomer vote. You know what? 
I'm I'm not gonna dunk on you're the one. I think that's a pretty solid late period Paul Simon album. So, I'll, I'll in other words, a, a perfect a perfect Grammy album of the year nominee. <laughs> I'll shout out you're the one. You know, yeah, you know, it didn't deserve to win album of the year, but Beck uh, has been releasing know. his you're the one for like the past ten years. So exactly, it would have been hilarious if like Steely Dan and Paul Simon tied for album of the year. <laughs> Uh, like, if, if if only the Grammys could do that. If they could, they would. <laughs> like it's like, well, you know, we're giving this to Steely Dan, but we're gonna get Paul Simon a Grammy too. Paul, Paul, come on up here. You yeah. made a good record. <laughs> um, of course, Kid A has gone on to be regarded as one of the greatest albums of the last twenty years. Uh, Pitchfork named it the album of the decade. Uh, the album of the aughts in their list uh, at the end of the aughts there in, in mm. 2009. Rolling Stone, they just put out their uh, top 500 albums of all time list. Kid A came in at number 20, uh, which was among the highest ranked albums to come out in the 21st century. I think To Pimp a Butterfly and uh, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy are like right mm. uh, after it. Like that's, I think To Pimp a Butterfly is 19. And the Kanye record is 18. Are you sure how to dismantle an atomic bomb is not up there as well? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. See, you keep throwing out these albums that I feel reflexively uh, compelled to defend. I actually don't mind that record. If we're going to, like, clown on a late period uh, U2 record, let's do, like, Songs of Experience or something. I think that's... Yeah, No Line on the Horizon or whatever. (laughs) How do I know... these albums i've never listened to them actually i, I just mean, you, i don't want to get too far afield here but like you too i think i think the highest ranked album on that list was octune baby which was like 120 or something no way yeah i don't think oh, i don't God. think a u2 album cracked the one, top 100 and i feel like john Wenner's rolling in his grave if he's well, no wait, he's still say, alive right <laughs> for all the jokes about rolling stone like just heaping praise on you too like that's kind of. I think they got job there. I think you got to put Octune Baby in the top one hundred or Joshua Tree. Uh, I would put. Don't you think one of those albums should be in the top one hundred? Uh, uh, like, I'm shocked actually. Like, I, I I kind of only have dabbled in that list, um, but like that that is like legitimately shocking to me. So I that's, I, that's the like millennials. That, you, yeah, you have convinced me that I need to like read this thing in full. Yeah, I, I'm just saying, like, you know, even if you think U2 is lame, Octune Baby, Joshua Tree. Yeah, those are kind of undeniable. You can't deny I mean, those albums. If you, if I mean, you think U2 like I sucks, saw, put those albums on. I think you will enjoy them. I think I saw, like, Blood Sugar Sex Magic was, like, one up, like, in the, around the Octung Baby uh, range, which, uh, like, yeah, so that's... Un- that's, really startling, but that's a great yeah. album, though. We're I'll gonna have, yeah. Oh, it is, but like, I mean, it doesn't have the same reputation. We need to put this conversation on. Like, we need to have like an eight-part episode on this <laughs> Rolling Stone list before we get too off the subject of Kid A. So I know, like, my 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 self-promotion just got derailed by talking yes. about the placement of Octune Baby on that list. Uh, so we've talked a bit about our feelings about Radiohead leading up to Kid A. Um, you know, in my book, I write about how this was an album I feel like I liked kind of from the get-go, just because I felt like I had been primed by so many people not to like it. And there was also this thing, I think, in the 90s where it was almost expected that if you had a big hit album, you were going to make the difficult follow-up record. Mm-hmm. You know, Nirvana with In Utero, you know, like Pearl Jam, like with no code or, you know, there were so many examples of like just really successful artists throwing the curveball uh-huh. after their big success. So it was almost like if Radiohead hadn't have done that, that would have been disappointing, you know? Yeah. Like, so I'm just curious for you, like, what, like, what are your memories of that? <laughs> and like, and just of the year 2000, because like, that's another thing in my book I write about just about the period of time. I, to me, that's like what was so interesting to write about this album versus maybe say OK Computer, even though I probably like OK Computer a little bit more. Just the fact that this came out, you know, at the beginning of the 21st century, really before all of these things that would come to define like the modern age happened. Like, you know, the internet was around, but it still wasn't that big of a deal. You could still steal music online, but like internet was still kind of percolating in music culture. You know, the Bush v. Gore election was just about to unfold right after this yeah. album came out, and that was insane. And then you have 9-11 and the wars and all that stuff. 
Uh, so there's so many things to, t- to touch on when you talk about this album. But, you know, I guess what are your initial remembrances of that record and how you felt about it and just in that period of time? So if we're talking about the year, like the, this, the second half of the year 2000, like my first semester of my third year of college, um, my recollection, like there is very, very little that I remember or cared. About. Like there are two things I cared about. One, if I were going to the bars that night, would my New Jersey fake ID work? Because it was like me, <laughs> it was like me and like five other guys, like all showing up with New Jersey IDs. And, you know, and, and a- after I had like enough drinks, like, can I please leave, go home, listen to my burned copy of Kid A? Like for me, it's like, I would love to talk to 2000 me about like how, um, how I received music news, like how I found it out because like, I don't I don't know if I had the internet in my, where I was living. Like, you know, I mean, I'd have to go to like maybe the campus like uh, library or whatever, but how did I know like what the track listing was? Like, how did I know that these songs that I pulled off either Scour or Napster, like how did I know those were the real songs from Kid A and not like, I know a couple years later there was like a Muse song that was mislabeled as Cut Tooth and people right. really thought it was Radiohead. Um, this album, like I was, I was primed for this to be like a, a life changing experience for me. Uh, I was ob- like, I lived inside Kid A. I don't remember much else that was going on. And I think what was such a profound experience for me was that as I said before, like all, like being a Radiohead guy, like this being a defining uh, component of who I was as a 20 year old, it was weirdly validating. Like here's this band that I love, like just completely reconstructing what it means for like to be rock music. And um, just like, listen to what they're doing. It's like, there's no vocals. Cause like, you know, as we, as we talk about like curveballs, I mean, Look, you listen to like 1997 to 1999, there's so many bands that um, successfully or less so successfully tried to incorporate, for lack of a better term, electronica. Um, I think about like, say, Zuropa or Smashing Pumpkins at Door, um, you know, albums that were still like rock music, but like had an electronic influence into it. You know, maybe there was like more drum machines or synthesizers and Kid A just turned it all completely inside out. And um, I, I just, like, I had never heard anything like it before. Like, I was so convinced that this was the greatest band of our lifetime. <laughs> this is our, um, you know, Pet Sounds. This is our Sgt. Peppers. And it's happening right now. It's not this, like, received wisdom about, hey, you kind of have to take my word for it when Pet Sounds dropped. Like, this was revolutionary. It's like, I was actually living through it. And that to me, I mean, if we got to talk about the pitchfork review at some point, but um, yeah. Well, yeah. I, think- I mean, I, and I think, you know, you were saying before about how, you know, how did I know like what the track listing was? Like, how did I know that these were the actual songs? Which by the way, I think it's hilarious that you, like, did you buy the record at some point or did you I did. I definitely bought, it? I bought it at some point. Like it was weirdly anticlimactic to do that. I mean, it was cool because, you would hear like the songs segue into each other and then you have to kind of relearn how to listen to it. But uh, yeah, that CD um, that, or that playlist or whatever uh, I had, it's, that was, that's to me in a lot of ways, like how I learned kid a, you know, I did, I, I waited, like I stood at my, I, I still thought at the time that I had to like sit at my computer in order for downloads to work. Like I couldn't leave. So I did wait like 30 minutes for Tree Fingers to download, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. It, yeah, and I think the reason why you probably knew about the track listing was that this was a record that was being talked a lot of online, you know, before it came out. And mm-hmm. like one of the things I write about in the book is that I feel like Kid A was among like the first really big records that compelled people to go on the internet to learn more about it. Like this was a record that I think really helped to usher in a generation of people into going on message boards, checking out like where, you know, you could find bootleg recordings of the concerts that they were playing before the album came out. You know, they, they did a tour that summer in Europe where they were playing a lot of these songs. Uh, there was, there's the story about how the record company 
essentially democratized the album stream of of mm. the record that you know kid a was a record again this was very revolutionary at the time that you could stream before it came out and not and they didn't make it an exclusive to like rolling stone or npr they had this embeddable thing called an eye blip it was a it was essentially <laughs> just like a like a music player that also had music news and like you know graphics and other kind of radiohead ephemera that like mm-hmm. anyone who had a blog could take this and they could embedded on on their website so it was like hundreds of 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 places that were streaming uh this record and of course the record ended up leaking online before it came out um Mm. and it was like one of the first big albums to do that too um and you mentioned the pitchfork review yeah uh you know which is this again this this famous review written by brent di Crescenzo. i think i pronounced his last name correctly di crescenzo i think it is di crescenzo and yeah. it was it's a perfect 10.0 score but it was more famous for the writing this very purple prose just way over the top sort of like uh it, it almost reads to me like 60s type writing like very yeah. sort of like speed driven cross with mushrooms like you know <laughs> a little bit of beat poetry in there all this sorts yeah. of stuff that that video that the review as much as things could go viral back then i feel like it did go viral for people i think because one people couldn't believe the writing of it i there, there was this sort of like i think a lot of people laughed at the review because they thought it was ridiculous but i think there was also a sense of of people appreciating the enthusiasm of it because the professional press if you will, like the Rolling Stones and Spins and certainly the British press, they were very skeptical uh-huh. of Kid A. Even like the American press, you know, the American press received it better than the British press did. Uh, but they were also a little qualified in their praise. I think there was a feeling of like, when you read the reviews, the, the sense I get is that like people didn't actually like Kid A, but they respected Radiohead enough to give them the benefit of the doubt that like wow. we're, we're eventually going to like this record. You know, yeah. you know, you know what I mean. Like sometimes you get that sense from reviews, like where there's not <laughs> from like a, other Radiohead records, such as yeah, like Shape where, Pool. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you see that like where it's like I don't quite get this yet, but I think this band is really good, and I'm going to get it eventually. I think that was the tone, but um. You know that 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 review of Kid A for Pitchfork. I mean, that was a pivotal review for Pitchfork, yeah. and I feel like that was the beginning of their ascendance, essentially, and mm. like, which is another wrinkle of this story. I feel like, again, looking at this as being a turning point, this album being a turning point at the beginning of a new century. You know, you have Pitchfork, which is going to become the dominant voice and music discourse in the new age you know and and it really began i think with that review yeah i would say that um you know as far as like the the writing being kind of over the top like i think we need to view it in the context of like what else were they were writing about at the time because i mean from like at that point i was reading them i was super interested in hearing like reading what they had to say about kid a and um you know, when I was when I was uh, listening to that record, to me it was like this. This is this is no doubt. Like this is five stars. This is ten point out. Like there is no way this is less than perfect. And right, I still hold a grudge against my college newspaper. I published a Kid A review, and I couldn't give it a perfect score because the editor did not think it matched the level of uh, the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Um, she was kind of ahead of her time, I suppose. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I remember like. When I read that review, I felt like really super validated. Like, yes, this is a 10.0. These people get it. Like, these people are really on the cutting edge. And, um, you know, the, the writing itself, like, if you look at, like, what else was being written at the time, like, this is what drew me into, like, the, I mean, in the in their review of uh, the Moon in Antarctica, like, they spend, like, the first couple paragraphs talking about, like, getting mail at the Pitchfork office. The review of... Um, relationship of command which also came out in 2000 is formatted as like a debate between bush and gore uh so it wasn't really that much over the top but at the time but nonetheless it's the enthusiasm behind it and i mean i'm 20 years old when i'm reading this and so i'm like there we there is someone who shares my enthusiasm and is not hedging like when eventually i think the rolling stone review came out and 
they were super positive, but it was like four stars, you know, like as if right. it were like a latter day Paul Simon album or something. No, I and, think I think you're absolutely right about the enthusiasm. I think that that's one thing. Even if people thought the that the writing was funny or or you know histrionic or whatever, that they appreciated that it was coming at them from their level. It wasn't this sort of older brother, older sister tone mm. that you got from the corporate magazines, which was very much like, you know, yeah, this is fine, but it's not as good as stuff that came out in the seventies or eighties. You know, like yeah. like we're it's no goddess, it's no goddess in the doorway. Let's just yeah, <laughs> exactly, and. Uh, and I think the writing too also drew people in because it wasn't like the writing that you would read in the corporate magazines where yeah. it was much more, you know, for lack of a better term, professional, you know, it was regimented. It was like, uh, you know, really like a lot of music writing is now. I mean, which in a way, um, I mean, I don't think all music writing should be like the Kid A review, but you know, <laughs> it, it, it's much tame. It's, it's, it's tamed down, you know, it, it uses a set a vocabulary that we're all familiar with that doesn't go outside the lines. Yeah, you know? trade here's a tra- here's a little trade secret. Um in law school they teach you how to format a, an argument and issue rule analysis conclusion. It's called Iraq. Uh a lot of reviews are formatted the exact same way. So right. <laughs> and it, like it, it, Yeah, and they're written to be kind of consumed quickly, to be understood right away. You don't have to think yeah. too hard about like what they mean. And uh you know in some respects, that's good. In others, it is, I think, a microcosm of like how much the internet has changed in the last 20 years. And to me, that's one of the ironies of, of Kid A, because when that album came out, and I think this happened fairly quickly after that album was released, that it was contextualized as this sort of warning about technology and like how oppressive the internet was. And I feel like in the year 2000, the internet was actually a very hopeful place and a very exciting place. It was a place that you would go because you were trying to get away from, uh, you know, the, the sort of oppressiveness of mainstream media or, you know, just mainstream culture in real life in general. And you could go online, you could commiserate with people that were into your own sort of geeky interests and, and, and not feel like, uh, you know, everything was so, again, so regimented and so, so safe and boring. And, mm-hmm. Really, Kid A, I think it rings truer now than it did then. You know, the, the the mood of the record, I think, is much more like 2020 in a way than it was in October of 2000. Again, before all of these things happened in the 21st century that would come to define just how crazy and paranoid and chaotic the last 20 years have been. I mean, I think that Bush v. Gore election, for instance is such a turning point in American history in terms of just like not, not trusting the political process, you know, yeah, which, like hail to the thief. Anyone? Uh, see, I exactly. just, oh, I just got that album title. Holy shit. It's like, wait, it's like <laughs> hail to the chief, except the chief is a thief. Fuck man. These guys are geniuses. So how do you feel about kid a now? Like, do you think this is the best Radiohead record? I or mean, like, if you think about like what, what 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 I what I view Kid A as from like my current perspective is like I think about the person I try to think about like what it might have been like if I were like thirty years old when it came out like because you mentioned in the book like Tom York starts buying up the entire Warp catalog of like Attacker Square Pusher Apex Twin like things that like I vaguely was aware of as a twenty year old and like you know now that I've listened to all that stuff. And I do does Kid A sound? Oh, this is just like a rock band appropriating like IDM or whatever. Um, but at the same time, like I listen to it now, it still sounds like like nothing else. Like I think you can look at, you can listen to like electronic music that recalls like Autechre or like Boards of Canada, but nothing ever quite sounds like Kid A, like because it is a rock band making an electronic record. Like one of the things that I think it's under that, that it's underappreciated about Radiohead is that, like you said, even though they're seen as this cutting edge sort of esoteric band, there's something kind of like classic rock basic about them. Oh, in absolutely. The sense, yeah, in the sense like you know, they're a gateway band. Like they have they they're an impressive band for impressionable people. Like the same way like Pink Floyd is or Zeppelin. Like, can you be 35 years old and go through like your Radiohead phase for the first time? Like I. I don't know if that's the case. And 
But when I listen to like Kid A is an album that I think actually maybe holds up in a way better than a lot of the rate. Like best, I like I honestly can't choose between that and OK Computer. But I I think just the lack of lyrics and the kind of nebulousness of it as far as like its themes and such. Like the Benz is a very specific, it's like a very on the nose record and that's good for that situation. But like when I listen to Kid A, I still go right back to 2000. Like it still feels like the internet in 2000 in a way. And I, it reveals like how little has changed in, in like in a sense of how everything just seems like kind of frightening. Like the, the, the cover art, very iconic in the way that classic rock is um the packaging the narrative behind it it is like it's an ex- like it's an experience in the way that i think the other records are not because of all the things that we talked about the the narrative the context the the where it, if it was released in 1999 or 2001 we would not be talking about it in the same way yeah you know like in a way i think you're right about the experience of the album it definitely feels like the most immersive probably of any radiohead album and it has a lot to do with i think with how monochromatic it is you know it's a very sort of dark claustrophobic again paranoid record and it's interesting to think about kid a in light of amnesiac which we haven't really talked about of course that album was made during the same during the same sessions and when you hear the songs that ended up on that record you could just tell like the choices that kid that uh, Radiohead was making in order to have Kid A be the kind of record that it is. Like they could have made Kid A more dynamic, say by putting Pyramid Song on it or by putting Knives, Knives out. out on it. Yeah. You know, these more sort of beautiful epic songs. I mean, like Pier- like Pyramid Song is like one of the most gorgeous songs that they've ever made, um, and yet they consciously didn't put it on Kid A. I think because they wanted it to have that sort of single-minded experience that you have when you're listening to it. I mean, I certainly think it's one of the best Radiohead albums. I would personally <laughs> also take OK Computer. That's like my personal favorite. You know, I would say that it has a lot to do, again, with when that album came out. You know, I was 19, which is like a perfect age to be blown away <laughs> by an album. Yes. And I just think that, you know, OK Computer was one of those albums that like, sets a benchmark for you as a listener. You know, and I think we all have those albums that we have early in our life that like you hear it and you're like, this is what an album should be. And you end up comparing everything to that album or or maybe like a handful of albums that you have in your mind. So I have to say, OK Computer is still like that for me. It's so ingrained that it's hard for me to get beyond that. I will say that I think that if you were to ask people about their favorite Radiohead album of the last 20 years, I almost wonder if more people would say in rainbows. I mean, oh. I I feel like just anecdotally that in rainbows um, is the album. I think especially like with younger listeners. Again, like if you were a millennial or you know even like a zoomer or something. Like if you cared about Radiohead, that was maybe like the first Radiohead album that came out when you were of age to like really care about music. You know, I think that for a lot of people, in rainbows is the album that implanted in their brain as much as it was maybe for other people with OK Computer and Kid A. I was actually surprised that that album wasn't ranked higher on the Rolling Stone list, not to go back to the Rolling Stone list, but I actually thought In Rainbows would be higher than OK Computer. Just because, again, in my own experience, I I feel like younger people look at OK Computer as being very 90s. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, In Rainbows Rainbows is so interesting because, like, it's an album I really like, but it doesn't have, and I understand like why it's, you know, it speaks to a younger generation, but it doesn't have that same sort of effect on me, uh, that okay computer or kid a does like, and it's entirely because, you know, I was 27 when it came out. Like, I think I was beyond having those formative experiences with music and it's like, Oh, this is a good album. I'll throw it on. But like, I'm not going to obsess over it. But I think also that, uh, you know, OK Computer is just going to be one of the, I thought that would actually be higher like than what it was. But I think OK Computer is just one of those albums like it's going to be like London Calling or, um, you know, or one of those rock records that just shows up at the top. Like you no matter what generation it is, it's just this 
it's part of the canon. Um, and I think in Rainbows maybe d- doesn't have that same thing. But I also think in Rainbows has become more of a cause for celebration because it doesn't have that kind of baggage. You know, it has like the whole, oh, you can pay what you want for it. And that narrative is super important, but it doesn't have the same sort of classic rock accumulation. Um, it's more open. It's warmer. People have called it like the sexiest Radiohead album, which I wonder what the second one is. Probably, <laughs> King, you know, probably they'll probably say King of Limbs. But um, yeah, it's it, it's it's an out. It's like like in a way in rainbows to me is like the bends in that yeah this is a really good rock album but not one that i feel was formative in terms of my personality because you know i was 27 like right. i you know i i was beyond having my like my classic rock phase was over at that point you know the the thing i would say that works in, in rainbow's favor is that i think it just sounds more modern uh just in terms of its mood it's a it's a much like more chill record yeah absolutely which, which you know and I, I just think that generally like like streaming as a format it is complementary to music that's more chill like whereas like i think if it's like music that is louder or more dynamic which i think okay computer has that certainly with the vocals and the guitars it is it's a i don't want to use the word aggressive i don't know if that's the right word to use in relation to radiohead but it, it there's more oh, to definitely it. is though you can't put that record on and you know just just lay back and like smoke <laughs> a like you can get high to that record i've gotten high many times to that record but <laughs> I, again i just think that like the, the like the sound and the mood of in rainbows it just seems like it's more compatible maybe with the way people listen to music now which just makes me think that it could end up overtaking okay computer i think kid a is always going to have the place that it does again because of the record itself, which I think is amazing, but also the period of time that it came out in. I think that the year 2000 is as significant to Kid A as like the year 1967 is to Sgt. Pepper. You yeah. know, like people associate Sgt. Pepper with the summer of love and the beginning of the hippie thing and all that stuff. Um, and I think Kid A has a similar resonance for its place in time, too. Um, so it, it just makes me think that it's going to stay in that spot. So I just wonder, I feel like OK Computer and, and Rainbows might battle it out. I don't know. I think the kind of self-selecting people who make lists and become critics, like, kind of ha- understand, like, understand the importance and the heft of Kid of uh, OK Computer. And, you know, the good news for is that, you two, um, so like Radiohead's not like you two, where they've had this embarrassing phase where that people turn on them. Like okay, like uh, Moonshade Pool to me is an overrated album, but like they've not met. Radiohead has not done anything that has really caused people to reevaluate uh, OK Computer to the same way that um, you know the Joshua Tree might come under scrutiny. You know, right? Well, you never know. Maybe you never know. Radiohead. Ra- <laughs> Radiohead Songs of Experience is coming uh-huh. our way right now. I think Ed Can't O'Brien wait. made that album. <laughs> Okay, we have now reached the part of our episode called Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I recommend something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So since since we were talking about lists, particularly with like the Rolling Stone list, I like to just kind of bring up other lists that have stuck in my head for a long time. The first of which is like the original Pitchfork '90s list, which was also it was topped by Loveless. Uh, it, it swapped Loveless and OK Computer. Billy Breathes was also on that list. Oh man! Yeah. So, but I, that's a good list. I, but yeah, it's it's a it's really super. You could tell it was written by like you know like four or five people. Uh, in the late '90s, but I look back because, like, I'm like, hmm, what have I? What are what are some '90s things I might have missed? And uh, one thing that comes up, I also mentioned how I would stay up late uh, just watching MTV when I couldn't go to sleep. And I don't know if you, Steve, remember MTV Amp. Oh yeah. Okay. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. And so I didn't really watch a lot of it. Like um, I remember just like seeing it every now and again. And looking back on that, you know, along with the '90s list, you. I'm just shocked this thing existed because you could see on MTV, 
uh, videos from like the Chemical Brothers, like, you know, they were a rock sort of flavored electronic act, but like Fotec and Aphex Twin and Orbital, like how is this stuff playing on MTV? And another band or another group, I guess, that uh, is along those same lines of like mid 90s precursor to OK Computer is Underworld. Um, Underworld is a group that uh, is still putting out solid music, um, but I had never, for whatever reason, listened to their first couple albums. They're an interesting group because prior to like undergoing their reinvention as an electronic act in the mid 90s or the early 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 90s, mid 90s, they were like this just like go nowhere rock band. And um, their fir- I listened to their first album, uh, Dub No Bass With My Head, which came out in 1994. And I just, it, it's like one of those albums where you just think about like an alternate plan of existence for you. Like what if I was like, I had a couple of friends who got like super into rave in 1996 and 97. Um, and that's like kind of where our past diverged and they ended up going to the University of Vermont and doing a shit ton of drugs. But the first two Underworld albums, uh, Dub No Bass with My Head and uh, Toughest of the In- Second Toughest of the Infants, like I think it gets a little bit overlooked um, as far as electronic, you know, big time electronic records of the 90s go. But this gives you a sense of like, like what, like what people were saying, like electronica is going to replace rock music. This is the kind of thing they're talking about because it is clearly like born of like rave and you know, jungle or drum and bass or whatever I'll call it, but it sounds enormous. And this is the kind of stuff that I look for like all the time that I don't seem to find as much in like the 2010s, 20s, like a lot of the bigger electronic music sounds, you know, aside from like the EDM stuff sounds a little bit too obtuse and like abstract, like, you know, Arca or whatever, or like one tricks point never. Um, I like that stuff, but like Underworld, the first two albums, this is like, if you want to imagine like a an e, like a version of EDM like stadium rave that isn't quite as like um you know doesn't have the same connotations um I don't know there's something utopian about this whole wave of music that was happening in 94 and 96 and I don't know like uh, just experiencing this these albums for the first time uh, I just uh, it's like what must have been, like I really wish I knew these were around when I was 16 you know yeah I've never listened to much Underworld. I'm very excited to, though, after you described it, because I, I love that kind of music, too, like that sort of electronic music that has like a stadium rock mindset where it's just enormous and it goes through your body and like you can't deny it. I, I feel like Fuck Buttons kind of have oh, that going God, on. Oh, God, I love that group. You know? Yeah. And I wish they would have become, you know, like an arena rock like type attraction, you know, because they were so good. I mean, are they still together? I mean, I feel uh, like those dudes are doing separate things now. Yeah, I don't know. It's like when you have a group that's two guys and they're doing solo projects that sound quite similar to Fuck Buns. Yeah. Uh, I have my fingers crossed, but yeah, I mean that like that's a that's a group I think of of like man, I wish more groups were going for that. <laughs> yeah, it's just killer. Um, the album I'm going to be talking about is, is something I know that you're also really excited about too, Ian. It's uh-huh. an album called Live Forever by Barty Strange. It comes out today, and you should definitely go check it out after listening to this episode. Uh, Barty Strange has an interesting backstory. His uh, real name is Bartiz Cox. He is 31 years old. Uh, he's in Washington, D.C. Uh, grew up living in a lot of different places, uh, but ended up settling uh, in his teen years in Oklahoma, uh, Tulsa, to be exact, mm-hmm. and uh, he was a real go-getter as a young man. I, <laughs> apparently, he worked in like the Obama administration at one point. Uh, he was a, a spokesperson for the FCC, but he hated that job, and he ended up quitting and moved away and started uh, playing in indie rock bands. He first came, I think, to everyone's attention earlier this year when he put out a really cool covers record called uh, Say Goodbye to Pretty Boy. Uh, which was uh, a collection of songs, uh, covers of songs by The National with uh, a couple of originals by by Strange at the end of the record. And, uh, you know, covers records, for me, it can be very hit or miss. Typically, I, I tend to find them a little bit boring. Yeah. <laughs> but Lots this of covers misses. record, this covers record, I thought he did a really great job of, like, completely reimagining these songs. Uh, songs that you may already be familiar with, like Lemon World becomes this, like, 
you know, sort of emo rock, rager, uh, the song About Today. I think he does a great cover of that, turns it into this sort of like low-key electronic song. In a way, kind of makes a early national song sound like a, a, a later national song, mm-hmm. like a very great interpretation of that. That leads into his new record that, again, is out today called Live Forever. And um, you can hear the seeds of what he was doing on that covers record on this record of originals, even though this, I should point out that he made Live Forever first, I guess, and was shopping it around. And then he ended up doing the covers record, I think almost on a lark. And it got a lot of attention and it really helped set up uh, this this new record. But, um, you know, it's a really impressive record that feels like a lot more epic than its running length. I think it's only about 36 minutes long. But he runs through so many different styles of music on the record and does it in a way that doesn't seem shticky. Like, it's very well integrated. You know, things like... I mean, he's drawing on indie rock music, R&B, hip-hop, even some country music and folk influences. Yeah. Um, Like, one of the songs has a quote from the Antlers in it. Like, I mean... but he, right. And then he raps but on he, the next song and samples Dilemma by Nelly and Kelly Rowland. <laughs> Right, yeah, there's a song called Kelly Rowland on the record. And again, does it in a way that feels very organic and uh, makes everything fit together. And uh, just like a really smart, canny singer-songwriter, like just putting together this record that, um, again, it has such an ambition to it, but it feels so breezy at the same time. It's not heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. But it's really not until you've listened to this record a bunch of times that you realize just like how ingenious like a lot of the songwriting is. And uh, I have to say that for me, like this is like one of the year's best debuts, if not the best debut. I'm trying to think of like other great debuts that have come out this year. Um, but yeah, he's definitely like one of my rookies of the year for, for 2020. And uh, definitely check out this record. Also check out the National Covers record. But yeah, I'm really excited about like what he's going to be doing after this. Because yeah, I think he's got a ton of potential. Yeah, I think this is it's it's so it's so I, I don't know if I don't know if weird is the right word, but just to see the people like people really are pulling for this guy. I think the fact that he is you know 31 years old, <laughs> like when he's making his debut and just kind of coming out of like if for lack of a better like kind of nowhere, but. Um, yeah, just a very likable, very canny dude. And this record just, like, it has, like, you know, skyscraping indie rock that was similar to what he was doing with The National. But, like, he raps on it, and it's, like, good. Like, it's not embarrassing, but he and he tackles, like, a lot of things, like, you know, what it's like to be a black nerd. He has a song called Moss, Moss Blurred about that specifically, or, like, smoking weed with his dad, or growing up in Oklahoma, um, all these like really heavy topics that people like are just, have been discussing all year as far as inclusivity and indie rock. That was what the national EP was about. It's like I would go, he would say I'd go to national shows and wouldn't see other black guys there. And so um, I would, but you're right in that it's very, br- it's, I don't want to say breezy because it's very heavy topically, but it, it's a very listenable album. A lot, you know, he worked with Will Yip, who's just, you know, produce too many records that I love to name. And he's just an ex- like someone whose voice like excites me. I like he could he anything that he does, like from his frame, his perspective is going to be interesting to me. And I can't wait to see, you know, the reaction uh, people have when this record finally comes out. I think you've seen like, like for someone at his level of like uh, notoriety, he's gotten like maybe 12 to 15 long form interviews about this record like that's how excited people like people know he's the real deal and i'm just so happy that it's finally out so again that record is called live forever it comes out today so you should go listen to it by the way when i because i interviewed bartiz ah. and my piece ran this week on up rocks i had to ask him if he was an oasis fan because <laughs> and he had never heard the oasis song live forever so i huh. definitely felt like the geriatric gen xer and in that equation but Bartiz strange if you're listening hopefully you've listened to live forever by oasis by now and i'd be curious to hear your opinion on that song uh that is all the time we have on this episode of indiecast 
thank you again for listening to Ian and I talk and to listening to me self-promote. By the way, my book, This Isn't Happening, is out right now, so please go check that out. Otherwise, we will be back next week with more reviews, trends, and all other sorts of indie rock stuff on IndieCast. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 